0: We apologize for the slight disturbances in sound during parts of this recording by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This was due to a fault on the original master tape. I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, reading particularly, perhaps, the first four verses. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Now we are continuing this uh, series of uh, considerations which has been engaging us for a number of Sunday evenings with regard to this whole question of what the Bible has to say to us about our lives in this world. Our object in doing so is to show that the criticism of the Bible, which, alas, is so common that it's a book that uh, is remote from life and has nothing much to say to us in this modern world, is, of course, based upon nothing but sheer ignorance that the Bible is the most practical and the most up-to-date book in the world, and that its interest is not in some theoretical religion but in the practical business of life and living. The Bible, in other words, makes no less a claim than this, that it is a book from God, that it is God who has here revealed himself, has revealed men to himself, has revealed the cause of men's troubles and the only possible cure for all men's ills. That is the claim which the Bible makes for itself. And that is why, you see, uh, amidst a great deal of doctrine and of positive teaching, we have also a great deal of history, because the Bible tells us that God has actually intervened in the life of this world and interfered in it. Now, the position can be summarized like this. The world has been made by God, so there is the essential beginning. This world is not something that's just come into being anyhow, somehow. We spent our first uh, Sunday evening uh, rarely in dealing with that one particular point. The whole beginning is from God. Of course, it's an obvious point of cleavage. You either believe that this is a world that has been made by God, or else you are prepared to believe the current uh, supposed so-called scientific teaching which really doesn't explain because it cannot, but which postulates that the whole world and cosmos as we know it uh, has come into being in a purely accidental manner, and that everything else is accidental, that these flowers are accidental, that man with his wonderful gifts and propensities and these extraordinary organs which we all possess, that all this is pure accident, absolute chance, No rhyme, reason, no purpose, no design, nothing at all. Now, obviously, there is a fundamental difference at the very beginning. Now, the Bible says, you see, that the world has been made by God, and that man has been made by God, and made in the image of God, and made in such a way that he can only live a full and a happy life as long as he's true to the law of his being. And as long as he is in correspondence with God. But the message goes on to tell us that men having been made like that in his folly turned his back against all that. He sinned, he rebelled against God. He accepted the suggestion that God was against him and he tried to assert himself to be equal with God and thereby fell. And all the troubles in the world ever since, right up till tonight and including tonight, are the direct outcome of just that one act on the part of men. The world is as it is, because of sin. Because men has become alienated from God, because he's been trying to live this independent life, it produced immediate chaos. And the chaos has continued. And of course, men having done this, God has pronounced judgment upon him. God has punished him. God put him out of the garden, out of paradise. Thrust him out and made it impossible for him to go back in his own strength. And men's troubles began. He had to start... Earning his bread by the sweat of his brow, he had problems to contend with, thorns and thistles and briars, disease and pestilence came in, and so on and so forth. But you see, the story is that in spite of this, in spite of having discovered that as the result of his sin, he thus produces misery for himself, and the world becomes chaotic, men persisted in this, so that you arrived at the time of the flood. When sin was so rampant that God announced that he was going to destroy the then world and did so in a flood. Eight people alone were saved in the ark. Out of the whole of mankind, God visited punishment upon sin in order to make this thing clear. Then you have a new start and a new beginning. But you remember that we saw last Sunday night that After a very brief time looked at from the standpoint of world history, mankind had gone back again into the same old position. It not only had not learned the lesson of what happened in the Garden of Eden, it hadn't learned the lesson of what happened at the Flood. Mankind still continued to neglect and to ignore God. And they decided, you remember, to build themselves a great city with a tower going up to heaven. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name. We were dealing with that last Sunday night. How men deliberately again ignored God, organized themselves in the form of city life, Try to produce what they called a civilization which would render them quite independent of God in every respect whatsoever and would assert themselves. They turned into a kind of mutual admiration society. They did it and boasted of it and put up their great name. And again, we saw that God, as he had indicated at the very beginning, visited them once more with punishment. God came down and scattered them over the whole earth and confused their language and speech and they had to leave their tower and their city disappeared and was destroyed. God punished them again as he said he would do. Well now that is the position at which we've arrived. And now we come to this 12th chapter of this book of Genesis which is of course in many ways one of the most important points in the history of the entire human race. It's a part of the same plan which God announced away back in the Garden of Eden. He made the announcement, you remember, that there would be warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He announced it, and it's happened ever since. There has been this perpetual struggle between God's people and those who belong to the world and we ignore God. And the struggle has gone on. But here I say we come to one of the most important and vital turning points of all. God having thus as it were allowed mankind in and of itself three times over to see what it could do. He did it with men when he first created him. He did it with men after he had fallen. He did it with men after the flood. Three times over, as it were. God faced the whole of humanity, and having given his law and having given his punishment of the breaking of the law, he waited, as it were, to see what they do. And as I've reminded you, they persisted in their cause of sin and in their cause of evil. But now God takes a new and a special action. God now announces that he's going to do something quite different. That he is going to start a different type of life. He is going to form a people for himself and to himself. And he proceeds to do it in the call of this man, Abram. The story of Abram, in other words, is absolutely pivotal and vital and essential in any understanding of the whole message of the Bible from beginning to end. The essence of the message, I would remind you again, is this. That once man sinned, he put himself under the power and under the influence and the dominion of the devil who since then has been controlling the life of this world, but now God has come in and God has made this announcement, this other seed, this other people. Now here in Abram, he proceeds to do this by forming a new nation, a nation unto himself, a peculiar, a separate people through whom he is going to further this, his own great plan and his own great purpose. So that the call of Abram is something which uh, we must understand if we would rarely understand what the Bible tells us with regard to the possibilities confronting us at this moment. We are all aware of the state of the world. I needn't detain you with that. But the question is this, are we aware of the other possibility? Because God is announcing another possibility. There is another type of life which is possible to us in this world, a life given by God, a life in communion with God, a life under the blessing of God. We see that the other leads to misery and turmoil and wretchedness and finally brings down the judgment of God. But here is a life that is absolutely different. And this is the thing that is offered us through the message of the Bible. And it's all summarized, it seems to me, very perfectly in the case of this man, Abram. Now, the Bible constantly refers to Abram. There are references to him constantly in the Old Testament. There are references to him constantly in the New Testament. Abram is the friend of God. That's his title. Here is a man, you see, who walked with God and in the presence of God, and who stands out as one of the noblest characters that the world has ever seen. I once heard a man describing Abram as the greatest gentleman of all times, and I'm prepared to agree with his verdict. There is no nobler, more majestic, more lovable character than this man Abram, the friend of God. And what a wonderful life he lived. Well, I say the whole thing is this, that it should concern us. This very self-same type of life is offered to us. And God is calling us to this type of life. We can be friends of God. You see, the New Testament tells us that Abraham is the father of all the faithful. Christians are described in the New Testament as Abraham's seed. That we, as Christians, are the children of Abraham because we are the children of faith. A Christian is a man who has done, in effect, the very same thing as Abraham did. And therefore, what can be more important for us than to discover what this particular thing is? Because it is an essential part of the message of the Bible to say that the conditions of this life are exactly the same at this moment as they were in the days of Abram. That is why you see in that 11th chapter of Hebrews which I read to you, a man there is writing to Christian people, and he wants to strengthen them and to help them. They were faced with certain difficulties and certain trials. And what does this man say to them? Well, he says, look here, you've got to walk and live in this life exactly as Abram did. He's already mentioned Noah and so on and Abel. And then he goes on to mention Moses and others. All these people belong to the same type and the same kind of life. It's this different life, this God life. They're all living this life. And this is the life that I say is offered to us in the Gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Very well then, my friends, here's the great question for us. Are we living this kind of life? Are we viewing everything tonight as Abram did? Have we the same confidence as he had? Have we the same joy? Have we the same experiences? Is this the kind of life, I say, that we are living? Or let me ask my second question. Isn't this the kind of life you'd like to live? Abram's world was exactly like our world. Things like uh, aeroplanes and motor cars, of course, don't matter at all. They're mere incidentals. That isn't life. Life, I say, was exactly the same uh, to Abram and his contemporaries as it is to us. And the tragedy is that so many people, because of these superficial and unimportant differences in life, imagine that life itself is different. I believe I once put it like this, and I can't improve upon it. People think that it's monstrous to say that life today is identical with what it was in the time of Abram. They say it can't be, because Abram hadn't got a motor car. Abram couldn't fly in an aeroplane. He didn't know about the splitting of the atom. Therefore, it is assumed that life today is absolutely different. But what is life? And the moment you answer that question, you discover that there is no change at all. The only difference between the age of Abram and today is the rate at which we do the things which they did. What did people do in the time of Abram? Well, they ate and they drank, they made love and they made war. That was life as it still is. The very self same things. The only difference is that they went and made love or made war, whichever it was, on foot or riding a camel, perhaps. And the modern man does it in an aeroplane or in a motor car. And that's the only difference between them. And you see the unutterable superficiality of this age to which you and I belong, because we rush. In a semi-lunatic manner to do it, we say, how superior we are, how different. Life doesn't change. It's exactly the same. You read this story of Abram, and you'll see it all there. You'll see how other people coveted his wife, and all the troubles that it led to. It's all happening today. There's no difference at all. It's the same circumstances, the same world, the same difficulties. And yet here's a man who stands out. He overcame it all. He lives like a giant. He lives like a nobleman, the friend of God. That's the life to live. Well, how does one live a life like that? What are the conditions? Well, let me just remind you of them hurriedly this evening. Follow this man's story, and this is what you find. There he is, Abram, lived in a pagan land, and he'd been brought up as a pagan. They worshipped a multiplicity of gods, and there he is living with the rest, and this is what I read. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and to a land that I will show thee. God spoke to him. God addressed him. God disturbed him. God called him out. That's always the first step in this matter. Invariably. Go right through your Bible. You'll find it everywhere. Read it in your New Testament as well as your Old. Pick up any book of biography of any saint that's ever lived, any man who's ever adorned the life of the church. It's always this. You'll find them all saying it in some shape or form. They say, there I was, living my life, doing the same things as everybody else. When, suddenly or gradually, and it doesn't matter which, the man became conscious of something that was disturbing him, something that was calling him. He felt he heard a call. Now, I could keep you at great length in pointing out to you the various ways in which that call comes. It doesn't always come the same way. Sometimes it's something almost indefinable just within our feelings and our consciousness. We begin to feel a sense of restlessness. We'd been living a certain kind of life and we thought it was marvelous and thrilling and everybody else was doing it and we thought we'd go on doing that endlessly. But somehow or another we begin to find, well, it's not so wonderful as we thought. We don't seem to get the same kick or the same thrill out of it. It begins to pall. And we begin to wonder what is there in it after all. We don't know why these thoughts have come, but they've come. We just find ourselves looking at that thing in a different way and having different ideas about it. What is it? Well, it's this call of God. He's put it into the mind. He's created a disturbance. Haven't you known something about that? You begin to ask questions. You are just disturbed in this way. Your world is shaken and something happens. Or, oh, of course, it isn't always like that. It can happen to us in circumstance. It can happen through accident. It can happen through an illness. It can happen through a disappointment. It can happen through a business loss. It can happen through someone's death. Oh, there are a thousand and one ways in which it happens. They don't matter. The thing that's important is that it does happen. And the even tenor of your way is disturbed and upset. And you are arrested and you are stopped and you are made to think and you begin to ask your questions. That's the thing that happened to Abram. God doesn't always speak with an audible voice. He very rarely does in these modern times because it's not necessary, because we have His Word. Uh, but God uh, does speak to us like that in the unconscious. He speaks to us, I say, through events and circumstances entirely outside our own control. Oh, how many a man has been able to say that that he would have gone on as far as he can see absolutely endlessly along a certain line, but something happened. And the whole course of his life was changed through circumstance or what he would even call chance. The word and the voice and the call of God came to him. It's come to many through the Bible itself. Reading the Bible, a man may have read it thousands of times before, as a matter of duty and without seeing very much in it, but just because he'd been brought up to do so, and wanted to keep a pledge or a vow that he'd made to a father or a mother, he'd read it so many thousands of times. That it had never spoken to him. Suddenly one day, the words seemed to stand out and were speaking to him. Directly, a personal word out of the scripture. Or it may be when someone's preaching. It may be in a hymn. It may be in a meeting still more vague and indefinite. It doesn't matter. The great thing is, I say, that this man who was living a certain kind of life heard the word of God, the call of God. You know this, I take it. You know what it is to be unhappy because of your life. You know what it is, don't you, to pause and to query and to question. Perhaps that's the thing that's brought you into this service tonight. It may be that you're no longer as young as you were. You've left your youth behind you. You're coming into middle age and the elasticity is going out of your life a bit. You may be still older. You may be realizing that your time in this life is now very short and the end may come and you don't know much about it and what's going to happen beyond it. Well, in these various ways, I say we are arrested and we are called. But the call isn't uh, isn't, uh, merely general like that. It's a specific call. And you notice the specific call in the case of Abram. Get thee out of thy country and out of thy kindred and from thy father's house. Now, what does this mean? Well, I think this is perhaps in many ways the most interesting part of it all. He is told to separate himself from all that had hitherto been his life. He is told to go out of that pagan atmosphere. He's got to leave the country and his kindred. He's got to leave everything. He's got to come right out of that and go into something else. Now, I want to try to show you the interesting way in which this account follows upon that account in the 11th chapter of Genesis, which we were dealing with last Sunday night of what happened when those people were set to build a city and their tower of Babel. There, you see, is the kind of life in which Abram had been brought up. A life, as I've told you, of independence of God, A life in which men form a civilization. They do it. They build their city. And you remember in particular that emphasis was placed upon this, that they said, let us make us a name. Their settled life, their city life, what they regard as a durable life, they baked their bricks, they put them together with mortar. It was to last forever. It was going to be settling down. They were going to settle down to life in this world, God right out of their considerations, God not necessary at all, self-sufficient city life with a great name for themselves. That's it. Well, now, Abram is called entirely out of that sort of life. In other words, the specific call that comes to every man is the call to repentance. What Abram is asked to do by God is this, is to look at the kind of life which he was living and to see that that is wrong and that he must therefore come out of it. Now, that's what the Bible calls, as I say, repentance. It means that a man is made to think again about the type of life he is living. He suddenly takes a look at this civilization, this city life of his entirely independent of God, and he is asked really to view it and to understand it and to understand that to which it leads. And then he is asked when he has seen it to confess that it's all wrong and to turn his back upon it and come out of it and to go right away and do the exact opposite. That's what repentance means. That a man having paused to think and to consider, now comes to see that that kind of life and existence that he was living is a life that is utterly dishonoring to God. That God didn't come into his thoughts, into his calculations at all. That he'd made it himself, he'd manufactured it, he'd thought it, he'd brought it into being. He rarely was interested in himself and in himself alone. Glorifying himself. Making himself to be a God. Doing things and then admiring them. That the whole world doing the same thing with him. Now the moment a man is rarely dealt with by the Spirit of God and this call of God comes to him, That's the thing he begins to realize. That his life really hasn't got a foundation. That it's a very transient, evanescent, passing life. It's nothing durable. He can see that what he had regarded as so solid is not really solid at all. That civilizations are smashed and come and go, and that he himself, in any case, is moving on, and he'll soon have to leave it all behind. And then he begins to think that there was no basis at all in his life. He's been living to things that cannot satisfy him. And so he begins to hear this tremendous call that comes to him from God to come out of all that and to recognize the sinfulness of all that and the folly of all that, that men should ever try to live in this world apart from God who made him and who's made his whole world. The God who visits punishment on sin, the man suddenly becomes awakened to all this. He realizes that that sort of life cannot satisfy a living soul. That that sort of life always leads to confusion and muddle, to unhappiness and misery, to jealousy and envy and pride and spite and malice. He sees it quite clearly. He sees now that the whole cause of the trouble is that people do not base their lives upon God. They've set themselves up as gods and the gods are fighting one another and life has become chaos. He realizes that. So he turns to God and he admits it and he confesses it. He admits his folly. He admits his failure. He admits his arrogance, his rebellion against God. He acknowledges that he deserves nothing but punishment. That he's done all that in spite of the Bible. He's done it all in spite of the fact that God's own Son has come into this world in order to call us from that sort of life and has even died upon the cross in order that we might be delivered from it. He realizes that he's done it in ignorance and blindness in spite of all this. And he acknowledges it all to God and realizes that he has nothing to do but to cry out to God for mercy and for compassion. He thanks God that he's awakened him, that he's called him to realize these things. Like Abram of old, he hears the call to come out of that civilized life, so-called, which is so terribly and violently opposed to God. And then what happens? Well, then, of course, he faces the positive proposal of God. Here it is in these words. He is told to come out of his country and from his kindred and from his father's house, where? Unto a land that I will show thee. And listen, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. You see, we come back to something I had to say last Sunday night. The case of the Bible is put in this contrasting form. Man makes his city. Man wants to make a great name for himself. And all that goes wrong. On the other hand, God has his proposal. God has his offer, and you notice what he offers. He offers the very things which man was trying to get for himself. He offers to make man's name great. The people in the Tower of Babel, you remember, said to one another, Go to now, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto him, and let us make us a name. Man's always trying to make a name for himself, and it always comes to nothing. God offers to make Abram's name a great name. And he offers him the blessings and the prosperity, and indeed the city which men desire. Now, that's just a pictorial way of putting it all, isn't it? But we all of us, you see, have either got our eye on the city of men or else on the city of God. That's the difference between people who are not Christians and those who are Christian. It's all a question of whether we're trying to make ourselves great or whether we realize that it is God alone who can give us greatness through adopting us into his family. We are either trying to build our self-sufficient civilization or else we realize that we must wait upon God to be blessed of him. It's one or the other. But this is what God offers. He offers us this blessing, this wonderful name, this other city, the city of God, not the city of the world, the eternal city, not the city of time. Now all this, of course, is offered to us much more clearly and plainly than it was to Abram. But Abram saw it afar off. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said one afternoon, Abram saw my day and rejoiced in it. Abram saw what was coming. God spoke to him. We haven't got a complete record of it here. But God told him this, that out of his lines, out of his seed, should come the final Messiah and Deliverer. The one who should deliver the mortal blow to the serpent and all his seed. And you know in a sense the whole history of the Old Testament is just the history of the development of this seed of Abram starting with one man and his wife and a child called Isaac being born and the children of Isaac and the multiplication and on and on and on it goes run down the centuries until at last you come to a babe that was born in Bethlehem and he is of the seed of Abram. He's a son of Abram. Here the promise is fulfilled. God revealed this vaguely to Abram. He saw it afar off. He saw more. You remember he was commended one day to take his son, Isaac, the son of promise, and to kill him there as an offering to God. And he'd raised his hand to do so when God stopped him and told him that he had provided a ram for a sacrifice and an offering. And there Abram saw in a very indistinct way, but nevertheless saw it, that what he had been asked to do and then stopped from doing, God was going to do with his only son, born after the flesh of the seed of Abraham, in order that mankind might be delivered. In other words, my friends, you see the offer of the gospel is this. God comes to us through his Holy Spirit and disturbs us and convicts us in the way that I've been trying to tell you. And then he puts before us this other kind of life. This life that is related to him. This life in which we are given pardon and forgiveness for all our sin and folly. This life in which we are given a new life from the Son of God himself and the power of the Spirit. A new name. Yes, the name of the children of God. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted into God's family. I will give thee a name. I will make thy name great. He puts a new name as it were upon him. The friend of God. The one through whom the whole world is to be blessed. And that is the offer of the Christian message this evening to every one of us. There is another type of life possible. Not a life of uncertainty based upon us and our own powers and upon the world. But an unseen life, I say, which is based upon God. A life which gives us peace with God. And peace within. A knowledge of sins forgiven. A new outlook upon life. An entirely new life with new strength and power. All this is offered God's blessing. That was the offer that was made to Abram. Come out, go in. Well, now the whole thing that matters at this point, of course, is what do we do about this? That was the critical moment for Abram in his life. God has spoken to him to come out and to go out. What will he do when the answer is, of course, that Abram believed God? That's what the scriptures tell us about him. Abram believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. He went out and did it all on what? Simply on the bare word of God. Nothing else at all. He had nothing but the word of God that had been spoken to him. He had no proof. He couldn't demonstrate it on paper. Probably his relatives argued with him and remonstrated with him and said, where are you going? We've always lived in this district. You're getting up and you're going. You're leaving solidity. You're leaving civilization. You're going to live in tents. You're going to be a journeyman, a sojourner, a traveler. Aren't you mad, Abram? What have you got? What can you prove? And he could but say, I have nothing but the word of the living God and I'm ready to act upon it. He believed entirely and solely because God called him to do so. Now, that is what we mean by faith. Faith means believing the word of God. It means that I believe this, that I believe what God tells me about that other kind of life in this world. What is my view of that life? Do I take my view of it from the newspapers? Or do I take my view of it from this book? What do I think of that life and of that world? And its whole organization. Do I know this evening that the world as it is apart from God is under the wrath of God and is going to be destroyed? Abram was told that. And he believed it. On the other hand, he was told that there was this other life. He could enter into it here and now. It might be the life of a journeyman in this world. He might have to live in tents with his children. But he's going to God. He's right with God. God's going to bless him. God's going to prosper him. He's got nothing to show for it. But this bare word of God Will he believe it or won't he believe it? Faith says, I believe because it's God who's speaking. And Abram believed God. And the whole question for us tonight is whether we believe God. The gospel puts it in utter simplicity. It tells us, And asks us to believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can you prove to me, sir, someone, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God? I cannot prove it to you as a geometrical problem. I can't establish it in the sense that I can give you a mathematical proof. I have this word which describes him, which puts him before me. Son of God, Son of Man. Here is the record, the word of God, and I believe it. It tells me that to forsake everything else and to follow him and to trust myself to him entirely will lead me to be blessed of God. And faith believes that. It simply takes it on the word of the almighty God. It says, simply believe. People bring forward their objections, their supposed scientific and other objections. They don't understand miracles and this and that. And that's the opposite of faith. Faith is to believe the bare word of God. There's nothing unreasonable about it. Once you believe it, you see the reasons for it. It all begins to work itself out before your wondering gaze. But at first, you've nothing but this bare word of God. And on that Abram acted, faith, belief, obedience. And that is, of course, an essential part of faith. What a wonderful way the scriptures put it. We are told, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Abram acted on this word of God having believed it. He went out. I think this is one of the most magnificent things in the Bible. Did you notice how that 11th of Hebrews put it? And Abram, it says, went out not knowing whither he went. But though he didn't know where he was going, he went. I rather like the comment of an old Puritan of 300 years ago on that. He said, Abraham went out not knowing whither he went, but he did know with whom he was going. And that is the very essence of faith, that you risk, you bank your all upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the other way in which it's put there in the 11th of Hebrews. This is the whole essence of this matter. Abraham decided to regard himself as a stranger and a pilgrim upon the earth. He said, farewell forever to that Babel view of life, to the solidity of the city, to life in this world with its bricks and mortar and man glorifying himself. Farewell to it. He said, this isn't the only world. I'm nothing but a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. It's a passing world and it's a dying world. And I'm a traveler and a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim and a stranger. I'm going out of cities. I'm going to live in an attempt to remind myself that this isn't the only world, that life and reality await me. You see what a contrast it is to that other view? That's an essential part of faith, that you obey God in that way. It doesn't, of course, mean in a literal sense that you have to go out of life or out of business or out of a profession and just become a literal traveler, but it means this, that in a spiritual sense you definitely do so. And if until tonight you've been living for your business or for your profession, you stop doing it. You say, that's transient, that's temporary, that's not me, that's not my life. I'm hanging loosely to that from now on. I'm a stranger. I'm not building here forever. My building is there. You realize that you are a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. And far from doing your utmost always to banish thoughts of death and the grave, you deliberately face them. And you deliberately look at this world and see how passing it is and you say, of course it is and I don't belong to it any longer. I'm in it, but I'm not of it. I'll come out of it. I have come out of it. And then I rather like this other way in which it's put in that 11th of Hebrews. We are told that these people, Abram amongst them, they do that sort of thing because we are told of Abram that he was seeking for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. The other city men say, go to, let us now build a city. They are the makers, they lay the foundation, they're everything. It's always men. Abram says, no, no, that's not the sort of city I want. God can blow upon that. An earthquake can reduce that to rubble. In a moment, an atomic bomb can smash dozens of them in one go. That's not a durable city. The city that I'm seeking and that I'm making for is a city that hath foundations, the rock of ages, whose builder and maker is not man, but God himself. God is the architect, the planner, the builder, the everything. There is a city that will never be destroyed, that can never be shaken. The city of God. So Abram went out, leaving all that, and keeping his eye on that land for which he was making. This is only a tent life. That's the eternal life. My dear friends, we are only in this world. Threescore years and ten, perhaps a little more now and again. This is a passing world. The great eternal remains beyond, beyond death. Beyond life in this world, beyond the grave, there's eternity. That's what we're making for. This is but a preparatory school. We are here today and gone tomorrow. Change and decay in all around I see. That's the everlasting and that's the thing we should be looking unto. And that is what Abram did. He came out. He went out. Not knowing whether he was going, but with his eye upon the city of God, the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He said, I'm a sojourner, a stranger, a pilgrim. That's the reality. I'll endure anything. And he did, you remember. He let Lot, his nephew, choose the marvelous cities of the plain and the fruitful valley to put his cattle and his sheep there and poor Abram himself remained on tops on the tops of the mountains. It didn't trouble Abram. He was still looking beyond. And you read his history and his story for yourselves, and you'll find that he always did that. You see, even when God tested him by asking him to kill his son, the son of the promised Isaac, Abram was ready to do it. Why? Well, knowing this, that God could bring him back from the dead if he wanted to. He believed God to that extent. That's faith. That is faith which manifests itself in constant obedience. And of course it was because Abram did just that. That he was the friend of God. The greatest gentleman of history. The noble soul that he was. Who walks like a giant through this world of sin. A triumphant life. He spent most of his time, the record tells us, in building altars. In glorifying God. My dear friend, though you and I are living in 1955, can't you see that it's exactly the same? Wouldn't you like to live as Abram lived? Wouldn't you like to be able to look at death and beyond as Abram did? I've told you the secret. Believe what God says about life as it is apart from him. Come out of it. Come out of it. It will never satisfy you. It will always lead to misery and unhappiness. And in the end, it will lead to death and the judgment of God through all eternity. Come out of it. Listen to this call of God to follow Jesus Christ. God forgives your sin and folly. Christ endured the punishment of it and God gives you free pardon. He'll give you this new name, the name of his own son. And he will lead you through life, through death and even into the eternal city itself and its everlasting bliss and joy. Come out, follow him. Amen.